Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 442 for May 10th, 2015. This week, if your Android smartphone's battery life is far too short after you upgraded the phone to Lollipop, I have some suggestions. Microsoft's Ignite conference in Chicago this week shows just how committed the company is to winning over IT managers. In short circuits, the speech recognition market is growing fast, Microsoft has filed suit against a fraudster, and you'll be shocked, perhaps, by how much Comcast and Time Warner spent on their failed merger. In spare parts, only on the website, Android users are continuing to upgrade to Lollipop, Opera's new mini-browser is a hit, and Microsoft is pushing Android and iOS developers to port their applications to Windows 10. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our lollipop, but in our apps. Shakespeare. Updated. Last week I described problems that some users of Android smartphones have seen since upgrading to lollipop. At the time, I thought my phone wasn't substantially affected. Well, it seems I was wrong. After only a few days on lollipop, also known as Android version 5, the phone was clearly using its battery faster than before, but at the time it seemed manageable. On most days, the battery made it through the workday, barely, but some days a fully charged battery could be exhausted in just a few hours. So I started looking for a way to lengthen the short days and see if acceptable performance could be improved. Some people have solved their problem by reverting to KitKat version 4 of the operating system or by performing a factory reset on the phone. I didn't care for either of those options. First of all, I like some of Lollipop's functions. And second, a factory reset involves a lot of work. Factory resets are considerably less trouble than they used to be because you can recover the apps and data from backup, but you still have to restore icons to the screens where you want them and re-establish all of the settings that you changed from defaults. So holding that option, the option of performing a factory reset or rolling back to KitKat in reserve, I decided to see if I could determine what was using all the power and make that stop happening. Android phones are powerful devices. That's the first thing to realize. They have screens that, although small, have lots of pixels. More, in fact, than are found on many desktop systems. Phone users also tend to want everything to be immediately available, so there are lots of background applications running. Guilty as charged on all counts. But what could I do to fix the problem? The screen seemed like a good place to start. The background image that I'd selected was bright and colorful. Well, that means the phone had to light up 3.6 million pixels whenever it was turned on. Assuming that each pixel is made up of red, green, and blue dots, let's triple that number. I wondered what would happen if I created my own background that consisted primarily of dark colors. So I used Photoshop to set up several images, some of which used a linear crossfade from one dark color to another, gray to black, for example, 
or consisted of just a single dark color, green and black were two of my choices, would I miss the colorful background? As it turned out, I wouldn't. Check it out on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The image I settled on, at least for now, is dark blue at the top and dark red at the bottom. It is understated. Maybe it's even elegant. And I had been using Lux. I use it on an Android tablet to adjust the screen brightness automatically, but it never seemed to work quite right on the phone. So I uninstalled it and enabled the built-in auto function. So far, it seems to be working okay, and I've retained it. Even more power could be conserved by turning off the auto feature and setting the brightness to a really low setting, but I didn't do that. These changes make a difference, though, only when the phone is displaying an image. My expectation was that the real memory hogs were applications and background services that run all the time, so I wanted to search for features that I could turn off. Before I could figure out how to do that, I remembered the operating system's built-in power-saving functions. That looked kind of promising, so I enabled it. Turning on power-saving offered a variety of options in three general areas. First area, restrict background data. I left that off. I didn't enable it because one of the reasons that people purchase smartphones is to take advantage of their ability to receive information when they're not actively in use. The second general area is called Restrict Performance. I turned that on, and it offers four sub-settings. First, Reduce CPU Performance. I turned that on. The phone has a fast processor, and reducing the performance a bit was at least worth a try. I noticed barely any change except when using apps that required a lot of computational power. So if you use your phone to play games frequently, this probably isn't a setting that'll work for you. Second under this general area was Decrease Screen Brightness. I turned that on. This additional screen-related change makes the display slightly darker, but it's still readable. I've gone back and forth on this setting a few times over the week. Because I don't look at the screen a lot, I may eventually decide to simply disable this option so that when I'm looking at the screen, it'll be as bright as possible. The third option here is the ability to turn off the touch key light. I turned that on, but then pretty quickly turned it off again. I know where the back and recent keys are on the screen. I thought I could do without the lighted buttons, but eventually I decided I didn't like that, and I turned them back on. But I did reduce the time that they remain on from 6 seconds to 1.5 seconds. And finally, under the Restrict Performance section, there was the option to turn off GPS. I did not enable that function. That, in fact, would be a last resort option. Allowing the phone to know where I am makes mapping and weather apps a lot more useful. And the final major section was grayscale mode. I did not enable that one. Changing to a dark background is probably enough, so I didn't bother with grayscale. Still, if I decide that I need to do something else to improve battery life, that might be a good choice. The operating system also has what's called an ultra-saving mode. No sale on this one. The ultra-saving mode would be the right choice following, for example, a storm that knocks out all the electric power. Selecting this option essentially transforms the smartphone into a phone with no smarts. Nearly all background apps are closed, most regular apps are unavailable, the screen is monochrome, and the phone can be used to make calls. And that's about it. But battery life on standby in ultra-saving mode was estimated at 17 days. 
an Android smartphone has about 157,000 menus, submenus, options, and choices. Now, that might be a slight overstatement. I poked through them looking for features that I didn't need and that I could turn off. The system menu contains a battery section. There you can check to see which apps are using the most power and then use that information to adjust the apps. Not all apps are adjustable, but many of them are. It's worth checking to see if a trivial application that you don't use very often is gnawing away at the battery when you're not looking. The email client I prefer, K9, seemed to be using more than its fair share of power, so I changed the background from light to dark. Other programs may have settings that determine how often they refresh their information. Weather Underground, for example, will update whenever I open the application, so I changed the refresh option from As Needed to Every Two Hours. That'll reduce background data transfer and also Wi-Fi usage. And I modified the way the phone alerts me. Haptic notification, also known as vibration, uses a lot of battery power. If the phone vibrates for every email, as mine did, battery life is going to suffer. I turned off all of the haptic notifications except for the one that vibrates if I enter my unlock pattern incorrectly. But there's this warning, if you turn off all vibration functions and then set the phone to announce calls by vibrating, it won't. Instead, turn off the other vibration options, leave the function on for calls. The real issue, though, seems to be applications that continue running when you may think you've closed them. How many apps are actually running in the background? Lollipop makes it a lot easier to shut down applications that are still open. Just pop up the recently used applications list and close the ones you won't need for a while. Reducing CPU load by eliminating background applications goes a long way toward increasing battery life. And remember to restart the phone from time to time. Sometimes there are background applications that may not necessarily show up when you display the recent apps. Restarting the phone will clear all of those. So the bottom line for me is after about 14 hours, the battery now usually has 60% or more of its charge left instead of having only 10% after 8 hours. And I feel I haven't given up very many of the phone's most useful features. Performance is largely unaffected. So before you head for the factory reset button, try poking around under the hood. The people who are in charge of purchasing computers and selecting operating systems for large organizations mostly turned their backs on Windows 8 and 8.1. So Microsoft is now making a concerted effort to encourage them to adopt Windows 10. Just how big that effort is became apparent this week in Chicago. Microsoft held its initial Ignite conference in Chicago to show IT managers features of the upcoming versions of Windows Management, Windows Office, hybrid cloud infrastructure, and SQL Server. Many IT managers considered Windows 8 to have weak management tools, but they do want to see what Windows 10 has to offer. More than 23,000 people attended the conference, and thousands more watched online as Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella showed some of the upcoming changes and enhancements. According to Nadella, no business can succeed and scale without IT innovating and transforming. 
Nadella addressed some of the challenges IT managers face today. Chief among these is the desire by users to personalize their computers and applications. Nadella says that the Windows Update for Business is a new management option for Windows 10 that's intended to keep devices up to date with the latest security patches and Windows features. The objective is to provide faster security updates and better control for IT managers while still allowing users to do what they want to do. A new System Center Configuration Manager is available right now in the Windows 10 Technical Preview. This feature can be used to deploy, update, manage, and secure Windows 10. And Microsoft plans to release service packs for existing Configuration Manager 2012 and 2012 R2 customers during the week of May 11th. The public preview of Office 2016 was also released this week. Warning, though, if you decide to download that, you'll have to uninstall Office 2013 to install Office 2016. The new version improves existing co-authoring functions in the Office applications. Collaboration tools have been present to one degree or another in some of the applications for quite a while. But the move to cloud-based computing opens the door to more widespread use of this ability. This is not a trivial function to implement, though. The application must allow more than one user to access and modify a document simultaneously while making it impossible for more than one person to work on the same part of that document. For example, only one person at a time might be allowed to work on a paragraph in a Word document, but many users could have that document open and be working on other parts of it. Although Microsoft has owned Skype for several years, it has been slow to institute changes. Skype for Business was introduced as part of the Ignite conference, and it enables customers to broadcast meetings to up to 10,000 people. The service uses Azure Media Services for streaming audio, video, and PowerPoint presentations. It can be extended with third-party applications to add audience polling, formal Q&A, and other functionality. Exchange Server 2016 was shown at the conference, but it will not be available for preview until later in the year. Features that were first delivered in Office 365 will be introduced in a new Exchange Server version. Examples include more powerful document collaboration, faster search, and developer extensibility for mail, calendar, and contacts. And IT managers who are concerned about security, by the way, that should be all of them, they may find Microsoft's advanced threat analytics both interesting and useful. ATA is based on the recent acquisition of Erato. It is now available in preview. ATA is intended to identify security breaches and threats by using behavioral analysis and machine learning. This isn't a new concept, but it's a welcome addition to the security suite. And the cloud is going to play an increasingly important part in Microsoft's offerings. The Microsoft Azure Stack, which will be available in demo later this year, will add Azure functions in both infrastructure and platform-as-a-service modes. The Azure Stack is built on the same core technology as Azure. Whether IT managers choose to support the new features or not, at least this week's announcement has given them numerous things to ponder and lots of shiny new toys to play with.
In short circuits, speech recognition software is getting better and the market is expanding. In the days right after the terrorist attacks in 2001, I needed to modify flight plans from Boston to Columbus, twice. Airlines were in chaos at the time, but American Airlines' new speech recognition system worked amazingly well. In the nearly 15 years since then, the process has improved to the point that even handheld devices can understand what we say. And we don't have to talk like this anymore. A $2,000 research report covers the industry's three major vendors, Microsoft, Nuance Communications, and ValidSoft, and it predicts a compound growth rate of nearly 10% in the industry by 2019. Speech recognition software is able to decode human voices into instructions that can be understood by a computer. In the early days, it was used to transcribe voices for word processors. The programs had to be carefully trained and still often made mistakes. Today's applications are used for many more purposes and with much better effect. The technology is even used for biometric security purposes to identify a person who should be granted access to a room or a service, for example. And it's popular in mobile banking functions that require authenticated users to speak their instructions. The report, you'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website, covers the present situation and growth prospects for the global voice recognition market through 2019. To calculate the voice recognition market size, the report considers revenue generated from sales of hardware systems and sales of software applications. The research includes detailed analysis of software applications like ASR, voice biometrics, including revenue from speaker identification and speaker verification systems, and text-to-speech. It also presents a vendor ranking and a correspondingly detailed analysis of the top four vendors in the market. The report also discusses the major drivers that influence the growth of the market and outlines challenges faced by vendors and the market at large, as well as the key trends emerging in the market. Microsoft has filed suit against the John Doe owners of a Verizon IP address, charging that hundreds of pirated Microsoft products have been illegally activated through that IP address. Verizon owns the address, and it appears to be located in or near San Diego. Microsoft says the address was used to activate numerous Windows 7 installations using stolen product keys, or keys that have been used more times than their license allows. The suit was filed in U.S. District Court for the Western District of Washington at Seattle. The defendants are identified as John Doe's 1 through 10 using IP address 74.111.202.30. The complaint says the defendants appear to consist of one or more commercial entities that subsequently distributed systems to customers who were unaware that they were receiving pirated software. As part of its cyber forensic methods, the complaint states, Microsoft analyzes product key activation and data voluntarily provided by users when they activate Microsoft software, including the IP address from which a given product key is activated. The complaint lists three types of invalid activations, 
product keys known to have been stolen from Microsoft's supply chain or which have never been issued by Microsoft with a valid license, product keys used impermissibly, and any type of product key used more times than authorized by the applicable software license. If the John Doe's are identified and if they're brought to court, they could be in for a heavy whack. According to the suit, as a result of the defendant's wrongful conduct, Microsoft is entitled to recover its actual damages, defendant's profits attributable to the infringement, and treble damages and attorney fees. Comcast and Time Warner called off their plans to merge recently, but not until they had spent more than half a billion dollars on the project. Half a billion dollars. That's probably more than you have stashed away in your credit union savings account. Comcast proposed the acquisition of Time Warner early in 2014. It would have been a $45.2 billion deal. That small-sounding .2, by the way, equates to $200 million dollars, just to put the whole mess into perspective. Federal regulators and most of the organizations that were promoting net neutrality seemed not to like the idea of a merger. No breakup fee is involved, though, because the deal was structured without one. That's good news for Verizon's stockholders, because breakup costs can be huge, at least when viewed through the eyes of mere mortals. When AT&T's attempt to acquire T-Mobile was quashed by the Department of Justice a few years ago, AT&T had to pay T-Mobile $4 billion in cash and spectrum. That, in fact, is how T-Mobile is now able to afford its current marketing campaign to steal AT&T's customers. Comcast's most recent earnings report reveals that the company spent more than $330 million in what the report calls transaction-related costs as it attempted to acquire Time Warner Cable. Time Warner shelled out more than $220 million during the process. Most of that, though, was probably in employee wages, as people from both Verizon and Time Warner tried to reach each other on the phone and kept getting a recording that said the call was very important and that they should just hold on for the next support technician, and that all calls were being answered in the order they were received. And on the website, check out spare parts in the order it was received. Android users continue to upgrade to Lollipop. Opera's new mini browser is a hit. And Microsoft pushes Android and iOS developers to port their applications to Windows 10. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.